This is Evidence-Based GI, and I'm Philip Schoenfeld, Editor-in-Chief. Today, we'll be discussing the risk of post-endoscopy esophageal adenocarcinoma in patients undergoing Barrett's esophagus screening with Jennifer Cole, Assistant Professor of Medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, and we'll be discussing her summary entitled Post-Endoscopy Esophageal Adenocarcinoma is Increasing, How Can We Improve Quality of EGD Performance? And this is in the November 2023 issue of Evidence-Based GI. Welcome back, Dr. Kolb. And as always, let's just start by discussing why this is an important topic for our listeners. Great. Thanks so much for having me. So we know that the whole goal, really, of Barrett's esophagus surveillance with upper endoscopy is really early detection of esophageal cancer. So we enroll patients in programs to get regularly scheduled endoscopy, and we're trying to identify low-grade, high-grade dysplasia or early cancers because we have great ways to treat these through endoscopic eradication therapy or, of course, surgery for cancer. But all of our efforts at early detection of cancer in Barrett's patients are limited. We really haven't seen sort of the impact that we want on sort of a population level to really decrease the mortality of esophageal adenocarcinoma. And so one of the potential drivers of this issue and our limitations is this concept of post-endoscopy esophageal cancer. And this is really describing cancers that are found in patients with Barrett's within a short time frame after a negative upper endoscopy. And it's thought that potentially these lesions were missed on the initial examinations. And we can talk about some of the reasons why, but the the question is really how common is this? How often are we really seeing these post-endoscopy cancers? We do have an updated systematic review and meta-analysis, 52 studies, almost 150,000 patients. And the rates of this post-endoscopy esophageal adenocarcinoma was 21%. That means that almost a quarter of cancers that are found after an endoscopy, sort of before the next recommended one, are are these peak or post-endoscopy cancers. And if we look at the outcome of just post-endoscopy neoplasia, which is cancer plus high grade, that rate's even a little higher at 26%. And if you only look at patients who had non-dysplastic at baseline, the rate is still 17%. So again, almost a quarter of these cancer cases are found after a negative endoscopy. And this kind of reminds us of that concept in colon cancer, post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer, which we know is really tied to colonoscopy quality. And the last thing that's really concerning is that the rates of these post-endoscopy esophageal cancers are increasing over time. So from only about 5% of all the cancers in 2000 to now higher than maybe 30%. And we don't have a great sense why, because you know, we've gotten better at things, but it looks like our outcomes have not. So all of that sort of sets the stage for us to say, well, what are really the the rates of these entities on a large scale? And so the reason I chose the study is because this is the Nordic Barrett's esophagus study, which really is the first population-based analysis to address this idea. And we'll be discussing that in just a moment, but I do want to clarify one thing for our listeners. We're not saying that esophageal adenocarcinoma is diagnosed in 21 to 26% of patients 
after their Barrett screening, it's a little bit different. What we're saying is that among all the people diagnosed with high-grade dysplasia or esophageal adenocarcinoma, 21 to 26% of those unlucky individuals had a normal screening endoscopy shortly before they were ultimately diagnosed. Am I phrasing that correctly? Yes, exactly. Important clarification. But that's still very concerning. I mean, the whole reason we're doing Barrett's esophagus screening and surveillance is to identify people hopefully with low-grade dysplasia before it can advance to high-grade dysplasia or esophageal adenocarcinoma, and yet a pretty substantial minority of those unlucky individuals had what apparently was a normal endoscopy without high-grade dysplasia or esophageal adenocea seen on that earlier upper endoscopy. I encourage our listeners to go to the summary that Dr. Cole wrote in the November issue of Evidence-Based GI. The bottom line results were that they found that there were 20 3.5% of esophageal adenocea cases were post-EGD esophageal adenocea cases. And that also for the combined marker of high-grade dysplasia plus esophageal adenocea, which was only calculated for Sweden, that 17% were characterized as post-upper endoscopy esophageal neoplasia being identified. So substantial minorities of these cases are occurring in people who recently had essentially a normal screening endoscopy. The time trend analysis also showed a rising incidence of post-endoscopy esophageal adenocea, with predictors being older age and male sex. So, you know, Dr. Kolb, I think what might be most helpful for our listeners is to understand how you apply this research in the management of your own patients, specifically how you try to ensure you do a very high quality upper endoscopy so that you minimize the likelihood of a post-endoscopy esophageal adenocea finding. And that's exactly all we can really do right now. You know, this study doesn't give us the reasons, but I think we all have a general sense that this is probably failure on our part to really detect neoplasia, dysplasia. And so my approach to a Barrett's exam is to use this 10-step high-quality exam. And I'll go through some of the highlights of this, but essentially you want to start by always identifying all of your landmarks and everything related to the Barrett's with standardized reporting systems. And this just makes it sort of standardized across the board and ensures that you don't miss anything. So that means esophageal landmarks, the location of the diaphragmatic hiatus, GE junction, presence of a hernia. Um, you want to do your exam for Barrett's using high-definition white light. That's at a minimum standard of care. And all the professional societies also suggest using chromoendoscopy. This can be virtual chromoendoscopy as well. Many of the scopes, you just click a button and they have different platforms where you can see in different light filters. And you really need to spend time looking. Some of the expert studies suggest up to one minute per centimeter. That may seem like quite a long time for a longer segment, but really the longer you look, the more your eyes will get accustomed to detecting dysplasia, to finding subtle abnormalities. 
And the prog classification should always be used, no question about it, to describe the circumferential and the maximal extent. Any nodularity, visible lesions, these should be described using Paris classification. And then finally, there's really well-described ways to sample the Barrett's. So the first thing is that if you see any nodularity, anything that indicates a lesion, so erythema, something that clues you in, this should be biopsied, targeted biopsies, and placed in a separate jar. And then the rest of the segment should really be using the Seattle protocol. So, th so that means four quadrant biopsies every one to two centimeters along the length of the segments. And these are really best practices. Many of what I, the, the steps that I just mentioned are actually even quality indicators for management of Barrett's. And all that is sort of within the exam itself. I'll also just mention there's a few key scenarios. For example, if you find erosive esophagitis, these patients should be treated with the high-dose PPI and return for a repeat endoscopy at eight weeks to rule out underlying Barrett. Certainly, if there's any visible abnormalities in the setting of esophagitis, those can be biopsied if there's concern for cancer or dysplasia. And then the last thing is once this really high quality exam is done, it's just important that we adhere to guideline recommended surveillance intervals. And just to review those quickly, we've always said that for non-dysplastic Barrett's, the surveillance should be three to five years. The recent ACG guidelines in 2022, for the first time, give us more of a risk stratification based on the length of the Barrett's segment. And they suggest that less than three centimeters segment can be every five years, whereas if it's a three centimeters or greater length for a non-dysplastic Barrett segment, these patients should come back every three years. So it's a lot of information, but I hope that sort of gives sort of all the practical tips that a practicing endoscopist would want or need to really perform a high quality exam, again, with the whole intention of really reducing these post-endoscopy cancers. In Dr. Kolb's summary, there is a table with that 10-step process for high-quality upper endoscopy in Barrett's esophagus screening, which outlines these steps. Just to summarize, key points, remember, post-upper endoscopy diagnosis of esophageal adenocea or high-grade dysplasia represents a substantial minority of all patients diagnosed with these disorders. And that, although there can always be sampling error, especially in long segment Barrett, that optimal upper endoscopy technique as described by Dr. Kolb may help minimize this. So we should strive to follow those processes. Thanks again for joining us today. Please remember to subscribe to Evidence-Based GI on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at ACG underscore EBGI, where we host tutorials every Wednesday evening and look for our blast email from the ACG on November 15th with our new issue.